Hi, you're listening to Silenced, discussing censorship and fandom with your host, Hilary Hensley. Today's episode is an interview with Nadine Strawson. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to Silence Discussing Censorship and Fandom. Uh, I'm your host, Hilary. So um, today we have a very important guest, Nadine Strawson. She was president of the ACLU from February 1991 to October of 2008. She was the first woman and the youngest person to ever lead the ACLU. She's a professor at New York Law School. And in 1995, she wrote a book called Defending Pornography, Free Speech, Sex, and the Fight for Women's Rights. Now, if you want to listen to the previous episode, What is Legal in Fandom, I referenced that book multiple times. We also talk a little bit about, uh, about the content of that book further into this interview. But if you want a deeper exploration of it, uh, buy it, check it out from your local library, I recommend it highly. She also, in 2018, wrote a book called Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship, which is also a very good book, and I highly recommend it. It will challenge your viewpoints. And, uh, yep, so go out and get those two books and read them. You will not be disappointed. Um, I actually, um, saw Defending Pornography recommended on Tumblr, and then I went to the library to go check it out, and then I checked it out again, and then I ended up buying it on Amazon. So, I just- Thank you. I just really love the book. It is so good, and I've probably read it, like, half a dozen times now, but, uh- it's, it's you know, so it was written so long ago. It is, I'm very sad that it is still relevant. I wrote it in 1995, and it was coming out of a series of debates and disputes and censorship efforts, including among feminists that started in the late 1980s. And then under President Ronald Reagan, ancient history, right, we had this <laughs> pornography commission that was chaired by his attorney general, Ed Meese. And those were hot topics way back then. Hillary, I hoped that we would have free speech for, quote, pornography or sexually oriented speech long ago by now. Yes. (laughs) It is very sad that people are still, like, arguing about this issue. But I just want to thank you. I just want to thank you for writing the book Sorry. anyway, because it inspired me. It's like partly inspired me to do this podcast. It's just, it was just eye opening, and uh, I loved oh, it so much. Thank you so much. Well, you know, throughout U.S. history, probably the single most controversial type of speech is anything having to do with sexuality. Uh, people attribute that to our puritanical heritage. So we more strongly protect other kinds of controversial speech, such as uh, so-called hate speech or defamation, where you're making a false accusation against a politician or other public figure. We give the most protection that any country in the world does 
But when it comes to sexual speech, my friends in Europe are always laughing at us because we're much more repressive. And I think it, you know, we see sex itself as being much more dangerous than other cultures do. Well, I think it's, I think it's interesting that we really haven't come to like this, this definition of what pornography is, you know, like Tumblr banned uh, porn on their website, but part of that was female presenting nipples, which is how they put it in their, uh, in their TOS. And I just, I just, I don't understand how uh, female breasts uh, uncovered can be considered pornography. That it's, it's a very typical definition though. And you're making me think of many battles that were launched against Facebook by uh, nursing mothers whose pictures were banned when they would send them to uh, family members or post them. And uh, it, it's also, and, and I, as I recall, Facebook actually backed down from that position as a result of all the public pressure. I actually remember long ago when the city of New York was ramping up its enforcement of so-called anti-pornography laws, it used the stereotypical definition, the classic definition that, you know, it defines exposure of various body parts. Oh, and this wasn't, this wasn't even pornography. This was live nude dancing. So how do you define mm. nude dancing that you can't do on a bar, right? No alcohol can be sold. And nudity was defined differently for women and men. So for women, it does include exposure of the breast, but not for men. And when the New York Civil Liberties Union brought a lawsuit challenging that law, we brought it not only on free speech grounds, but also on equal protection grounds, arguing that it was gender discrimination to allow men to reveal more of their bodies than women. Yes. Yeah, I certainly agree that that is gender discrimination. And when you can't really define it, what pornography is, how do you enforce like a ban of pornography? Well, the most famous definition that any Supreme Court justice has ever given of obscenity or pornography, and we can get into the distinctions there, uh, was Su Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart when he said, I, and he was trying, he was talking about hardcore pornography. So there's yet another confusing term to add to the mix. And he famously said, I cannot define it, but I know it when I see it. And yes, he actually wrote that in a Supreme Court opinion. And, and, and he, I really appreciate his honesty and his candor because no matter how many lengthy, detailed, complicated definitions anybody comes up with, whether it's the U.S. Supreme Court or whether it's Tumblr or another social media site, it inevitably comes down to what the person viewing it does not like, and more specifically, yes. what the person viewing it thinks other people should not be allowed to view. Yeah, that's... Every censor in, in, uh, on earth says that other people will be deeply harmed by viewing it, but they themselves can, can view as much of it as they want completely unscathed, right? 
Yes, that kind of reminds me of the Comstock laws in early 1900s in New York, where uh, pornography was defan de uh, defined as uh, also sex education with the whole Margaret Sanger yes. thing. So, yeah, absolutely. Any anything that people don't want you to see, they will label as pornography so you're not able to see it. And I think the example that you gave is very, um, gives us a really good insight, Hillary, which is the people who are enforcing the law are the ones that have the power and the power tends not to reside on in the part of the people who are the main target of censors. So the Comstock laws go back to the turn of the 19th century before women could even vote. Uh, Margaret Sanger was, was trying to spread information about contraception and, and, and women's reproductive options before women had the right to vote. So women were completely vulnerable and powerless within the political system. No surprise that information that was especially important to them was the prime a prime target of suppression. And we see that today, you know, later on in our history, uh, LGBTQ, other sexual minorities, where it was their sexual expression that was considered subject to uh, suppression. So, uh, for example, um, when the Supreme Court uh, started discussing a legal category of obscenity, um, it specifically singled out what it called perverted, uh, and that was the term that it used, depictions of sexuality as being especially dangerous. And uh, what they were referring to was any reference to same-sex uh, sexual encounters, same-gender sexual encounters. Hmm. Yeah, that reminds me of, uh, in your book, you had uh, referenced Butler versus the Queen in Canada, and that it was mm -hmm. mostly mm -hmm. LGBT uh, pornography mm -hmm. or also material that wasn't getting into Canada, and that several bookstores yeah. ended up being hurt by this uh, law that came up. Yeah, I can't remember the exact year, but I think it was in the early, it was sometime in the early 1990s when Canada, this progressive, pro-feminist country, uh, in its enlightenment, adopted an anti-pornography law that had been advocated by some feminists. So now we're not talking about uh, Ed Meese or Anthony Comstock. We're talking about a law that is advocated by some progressive people, and I totally support their goal, which was to uh, protect women's equality and to protect women's safety. Uh, I share that goal. I totally disagree with the means and I totally agree, disagree with their analysis of pornography or sexually oriented expression, which they saw as somehow undermining and being demeaning to women's dignity, safety, and equality. And, and those of us in the feminist community who opposed censorship as being bad for women as well as bad for for freedom and including freedom of speech predicted that it would be lgbtq material and even feminist material that would be subject to 
censorship under the law. And sure enough, that is exactly what happened. Uh, there were e even a couple of judges and prosecutors who said that, because the operative term in the law was uh, depictions of sexuality that are demeaning, degrading, or dehumanizing uh, to women. And a number of judges and prosecutors said, well, depictions of lesbian sexuality are inherently demeaning and degrading. And it doesn't matter that it was consensual and not rape because it's a more degrading if she subjects herself to it voluntarily. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it had a devastating impact on uh, then before the internet age, there were bookstores that specialized in uh, LGBT materials, and there weren't very many in Canada, as I recall. There were about five, and all of them were literally forced to shut down because of this supposedly pro-feminist take on, on, on the concept of pornography. Yeah, I'm always surprised to see like the censorship issue come from uh, self-proclaimed progressives because it seems like the opposite of where they would be coming from. So like in the book, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, it's Fifty Shades of Grey. It started out Yeah, as... I read the book and I saw the movie. <laughs> okay, good. It started out as Twilight fan fiction. And then mm -hmm. uh, when it was, she self-published it and then it was picked up by another publisher. And it kind of grew in popularity. And I saw all these posts saying that women should not read this book because it leads to bad BDSM practices and that women will read it thinking this is how you go out and practice BDSM. And in fact, I had a friend on one of my Facebook friends uh, actually post that and uh, I argued with him. But I'm surprised by how uh, these progressive people are, are advocating censorship and banning of books because they see something that they think might be harmful to women. It's been my whole life crusade, Hillary. I have been <laughs> battling the left at least as much as the right. The only thing they usually disagree about is which speech should be censored. So uh, many years ago, a wonderful journalist who since died was a friend and colleague of mine, Matt Hentoff, wrote a book whose title says it all. It was called Freedom of Speech for Me, but Not for Thee. And the subtitle was How the Left and Right Relentlessly Censor Each Other. So most people, in fact, do support censorship of ideas that they, from their particular ideological perspective, consider to be dangerous. And from the right, that usually means anything that undermines law and order or national security or fosters socialism, communism, you know, leftist uh, goals, whereas from the left, it's anything that undermines goals of um, of feminism, of racial justice, of gender justice. And um, lately I have been spending a lot of time crusading against laws that are advocated almost exclusively by the left against so-called hate speech, speech that undermines somebody's equality or dignity uh, on the basis of race, religion, ethnicity, uh, and so forth. And as we know from all the campus battles and 
social media battles, it's prim primarily the left that, that supports suppression of hate speech. Now, I, as an advocate of all fundamental freedoms for all people, regardless of who you are and regardless of what you believe, I'm absolutely convinced that all of those rights are indivisible and that especially those of us who are advocating equality and dignity for groups that have traditionally been marginalized and excluded, the powerless, those are the ones who especially depend on an extremely robust free speech guarantee, robust enough to extend to ideas that could even be called hateful. Yeah, I read uh, your book, Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. I downloaded it on mm -hmm. Amazon and I really mm -hmm. enjoyed it. I thought it was very well done. And actually a few years ago, um, before I took this history class in college, but a few years ago, I was kind of against hate speech. I didn't see the purpose of it. I didn't think it should be allowed. But when I took a class in college, it's a civil, civil rights class. They talked about, uh, the professor talked about the Black Panthers and how that um, mm -hmm. a lot of people wanted to label them a hate group. Oh, and absolutely. it just, it just like opened my eyes to like, okay, no, maybe that's why we should allow hate speech. Because the and, wrong and and to sorry no it's an, right. an example we have an analogy we have an analogy today which is Black Lives Matter many, oh, many yes, people absolutely. consider that to be hate speech and so you do do not have to defend the speech itself I'm the first person to absolutely load any kind of hateful speech based on its content nor do you have to love speech to defend it. Um, I don't actually look at a lot of pornography myself. Many people are surprised to hear it. I think, well, why? I defend other people's rights to make their choice. I don't have to share that choice. And I may even disagree, strongly disagree uh, with speech. But, you know, as the famous statement by Voltaire, I disagree with what you say, but I defend to the death your right to say it. Uh, that is a value that is very, very rapidly disappearing in the United States, especially on the left. I don't know if you followed the recent controversies with the New York Times, Washington Post, Philadelphia Inquirer, you know, very progressive newspapers that are now saying they shouldn't run op-eds from people, even important people with influential positions uh, in government whose ideas are widely supported by big swaths of the public that, you know, we should not open our op-ed pages to these views. It's very frightening to me. Yes, I have uh, uh, kept up. I saw the New York Times one where uh, they published uh, an opinion and everybody like got on them about it. Yeah, in the, in the, in the newsroom ganged up on the uh, opinion editor. And when Facebook refused to label uh, some of Donald Trump's posts as, um, as, as promoting violence the way Twitter did, uh, then Facebook employees had a, had a virtual walkout. So employees of companies that used to be devoted to serving as forums for the exchange of ideas and the debate of ideas, uh, unfortunately, their employees reconceived the purpose of these institutions as being to promote what they see as the truth. Uh, and it's fine. People are free to do that. But I think we definitely need some institutions in society 
that will serve as open forums for the to hear ideas that we disagree with and then we can we might be persuaded to reform our own views but we might also uh uh refine our arguments and, and understandings against those ideas and be able to combat them more effectively when we're forced to grapple with them i totally agree with that but uh as it relates to fandom I know you talked about in your book, and this has something to do with like banning speech you don't agree with, is that on college campuses, you started to see more sexual harassment lawsuits because of artwork mm -hmm. or lectures mm -hmm. done in the classroom. And I wanted to know if you could tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, this is something that hopefully might be ending. There's now a legal tool to do that. Uh, and what we are talking about, this is something else that's been in the news, is so-called Title IX of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits gender-based discrimination in any educational program that receives federal funding, which is essentially all campuses, private sector, as well as public. And there had been, starting decades ago, and it really took off during the Obama administration, uh, a, what to me is a dangerous and false equation between any expression with any sexual content or even any sexual innuendo uh, that somebody could see as making her uncomfortable. And, 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 and so starting many decades ago, we have had examples of works of art, works of literature, jokes made by professors, uh, even information about um, sexuality, about contraception. Uh, if a student saw it as offensive for any reason or that it made the student uncomfortable for any reason, that was treated as punishable sexual harassment that, that, that violated these Title IX regulations and could subject the school to the enormous punishment of losing all federal funding. And in order to avoid that horrible result, because campuses so depend on federal money, they adopted very overly broad uh, sexual harassment policies that, that do extend to expression. Now, Betsy DeVos has been so attacked uh, by the left uh, because of her revision of the Title IX regulations. The, the new regulations were issued recently, and um, there are already a couple of lawsuits against them. But one of the positive reforms that these regulations initiated was narrowing the definition of punishable sexual harassment in, in two really important ways when it comes to expression. Number one, so again, the, the broadest definition was uh, under the Obama administration in 2011. And, 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 and this really surprises me because Barack Obama himself was fantastic on campus free speech. And you know he gave a number of addresses, including commencement addresses where he really said, and he was directly speaking to racial minority students, he said, I understand the pain of having to deal with this, but you're going to have to deal with it when you 
get out of here. And if you want to see the changes in society that you're, uh, you're, you're agitating for, then you just have to put up with this hate speech and you have to learn not to let it get you down and they have to learn how to respond to it effectively. And he said the same thing about sexist statements. But meanwhile, uh, his Department of Education issued a letter in 2011 that it treated as binding on all campuses, which said that punishable sexual harassment, which would subject the campus to, to losing federal funding if they didn't punish it, uh, was any expression about sex uh, that a hearer or a viewer subjectively, that from her subjective perspective, made her feel uncomfortable or subjectively perceived it as unwelcome. That was completely different from the legal definition that the US Supreme Court had endorsed, which is what DeVos has now gone back to. And that is that it has to be sufficiently severe and pervasive from an objective perspective. That is, you know, not just a thin-skinned person who happens to be offended by a particular remark, but would a reasonable person see it as so severe and so pervasive as to deprive her of an equal educational opportunity? Well, you know, no sooner was the ink dried on those regulations than there were lawsuits um, challenging them, including by the organization I long-headed. I, I strongly dissent from this particular position, as, as they know. Uh, the ACLU brought a lawsuit, so it'll be a while before that gets enforced. But I really want people to understand we've seen even abstract works of art that made somebody uncomfortable. There was a recent incident at Wellesley where students objected to uh, a sculpture that showed a, a, a man that wasn't fully dressed. I mean, heaven forbid, the famous Michelangelo David. Um, professors giving lectures on, on sexual health. Uh, professors teaching works of great literature that have sexual themes. There was a big protest at Columbia University a few years ago with its famous um, humanities um, curriculum. The students didn't want to read the classic uh, Greek work, Metamorphoses, Ovid's Metamorphoses, because it depicts rape. You know, well, there are a lot of great works of literature that, that depict rape. And I have no doubt it could make some people uncomfortable. So I understand under the old definitions, that's endangered literature. We see the same uh, problems in fandom. Lately, uh, a lot of people have been labeling certain works that they don't like as child pornography. Uh, this includes fan art plus also fan fiction. And the weird thing is, is like on Twitter, uh, you get people attacking people for uh, liking certain relationships and fandom ships. So uh, they will suicide bait people and people have ended up in the hospital. Also mm. on Twitter, these people, these aunties is what we call them, uh, have actually shared child pornography, real child pornography. And then when called out on it, they said that they didn't know it was actual child pornography. They thought it was fictional child uh, pornography, which doesn't exist. 
but that's what they were saying and that they wanted to do a call out post about it and like a hundred or so people shared actual child pornography on twitter but uh it raises that's that's illegal (laughs) it is very illegal i'm sure people were prosecuted but I think it weakens the word when you use the term yes. uh, child pornography or pedophilia yes. when it's something that doesn't apply. And I think you probably most of your listeners are so well educated thanks to your podcast, but in an excess of caution, I think I should spell out uh, what the very crucial legal distinction is between what people would loosely call child pornography and what is actually subject to criminal prosecution consistent with freedom of speech. And that is expression, expressive works that actually use, abuse, exploit an actual human being who is below the age of majority, 18, right? Uh, And anything that could look identical, but is not made through the use of an actual minor human being is completely protected as a matter of law. And the U.S. Supreme Court decided that very clearly uh, quite a number of years ago in uh, a case where the federal government had passed a statute that tried to criminalize what was called virtual child pornography. This was fairly early on in the internet age. And so people were using computer tools to um, either generate images that looked as if they were minors, but they were completely computer generated. No actual child was involved. Or they would use morphing techniques where they would, you know, morph the the, the, the face of an actual child onto the body of somebody else, uh, or they would use, um, uh, uh, and, and this is done, I guess, in the, in the, in the commercial pornography industry, uh, they would use a very young looking model who happened to be over the age of majority, but, but didn't look that way. And the Supreme Court said that that is protected free speech and, and the harm that you're trying to Uh, prevent, that is the exploitation of an actual human being who is too young to meaningfully consent, Um, that harm is not presented by by these works. Now, I should say, one of those examples, when you're using uh, the head of an actual child, that uh, those of us who challenge the law agree that that could be uh, criminalized because that's invading the privacy rights of that young person. Um, yes. So, uh, but it's not child pornography. But yes, fandom has a problem with mislabeling things, and I think it's just so harmful to mislabel because eventually, you see somebody calling somebody a pedophile or accusing somebody of distributing mm-hmm. child pornography, and you think, oh, it's just. It's just an auntie going off on a piece of fiction. It's like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. It was a show in the 80s. And there's yes. been a recent uprising uh, from aunties about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because <laughs> they're teenagers. So when you put mm-hmm. them in, uh, <laughs> in sexual situations, oh, it's like these turtles are underage. <laughs> 
like, okay. <laughs> and it's not ironic. It's, <laughs> you know, in the Supreme Court decision, which the opinion was written by Anthony Kennedy, who is a conservative, Republican, staunch Catholic. I mean, we're not talking about some left-wing, you know, free love, freewheeling uh, libertarian or libertine here. We're talking about a really religiously and politically conservative guy. And he wrote a wonderful opinion in which, among other things, he listed many great classic works of literature and Academy Award-winning movies that would have been uh, illegal under this overly broad concept of virtual child pornography, starting with Romeo and Juliet, right? She was only 13 years old through the whole course of that play, and he wasn't much older. That's true. And I think the, the over-labeling, it really, it, it, you're absolutely right. It ends up somehow uh, reducing the degree of culpability or uh, stigma against those who really are doing the most dangerous, egregious acts. To me, that's happened as a result of the Me Too movement, which has had many, many, many positive impacts. But... Um, as the concept of um, calling out somebody for sexual violence. I mean, we started with mass rapists, right, who were clearly engaging in the most coercive, brutal conduct toward women over whom they had enormous power. But, you know, then it degenerated into somebody who, you know, doesn't behave in the way that you would like on a date or or tells a joke that you think is stupid. And I think it really uh, has had, has undermined the, the initial power of the movement, unfortunately. Yes, yes. Um, the same thing, I think, like undermining the word, I think the same thing happens when you say like 50 Shades of Grey leads to bad BDSM practices. You you strip people of their uh, responsibility, their own responsibility towards reading this work Absolutely. and figuring out on their own what is bad BDS and practices and what is not. You're infantilizing people. Absolutely. Yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more that uh, there is this assumption that uh, we are automatons and we see something, we're going to immediately imitate it and we're immediately going to be instigated by it. I saw that in the uh, reaction of uh, so many members of the newsroom at the New York Times in the incident we were talking about, uh, where they said that their argument was, and they sent a petition, that publishing this op-ed where a uh, former member of the US military, who's now a member of the United States Congress, uh, was advocating that if law and order broke down because of protests and the police and the community were not able to provide safety, that in those situations, the military should be called in. I hasten to add, I disagree with his conclusion. Uh, but uh, what the, the, the members of the newsroom staff who said that this should never have been published at all, the argument they made was that um, this speech harmed black people including 
black staff members at the New York Times because they would feel so frightened that the military would be called out and that that would therefore um, deter them from, from going out in public or subject them to anxiety attacks. And, you know, I don't at all mean to minimize the potential fear and the potential adverse psychological and emotional trauma, but I would hope that all of us uh, could learn how to surmount those fears, to have a sense of self-confidence, to have a sense of uh, doing what they ultimately did do, interestingly enough, which is raising their voices in very effective protests. So, you know, as they're saying that we, this is just having unmitigated harm on us, they themselves are demonstrating how they can rise above it through more free speech, right? Uh, yeah. not, not through suppression. Also, like the other way, like when Ted Bundy was interviewed by uh, James Dobson, he told uh, James Dobson that it was porn that made him do it, like really hardcore porn that made him go out and uh, rape and kill women. And I also think it like, like, okay, the porn made me do it. I shared no responsibility in my actions. Or like when you say that fanfic helps groom people to to uh, be comfortable with an adult, like being sexual with them, you say that adult has basically no responsibility for his or their actions, that it's all the responsibility of this fanfic writer who wrote something they were into. And uh, I also that's, think that's not great, not a good position to get into. It's, it's such a power, these are such powerful examples. And you're reminding me that uh, I don't remember if it was Ted Bundy himself, but there was some uh, notorious um, uh, sex offender who had murdered women after raping and torturing them. And Catherine McKinnon, who is a very prominent feminist scholar and activist who was crusade leading the so-called feminist anti-pornography crusade, she actually argued that he should either not be uh, penalized at all or that his penalty should be reduced because he was in, he had diminished capacity thanks to having read uh, and, and looked at pornography. And how one can argue in the name of feminism and promoting women's safety and equality that a convicted rapist should get off the hook I, 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 I just, you know, ties up my mind in knots. And that was one of many reasons why those of us on the uh, feminists on the other side of this debate argued that this is not an argument, that this is not a position that's going to be beneficial to, to women's safety. Uh, it's Justice Kennedy's opinion in the virtual porn case made uh, addressed a very similar argument. The government was arguing that, well, people who see virtual child pornography. Yes, we agree that and no actual child is being abused in the production of virtual uh, child pornography, but it's got another harm, which is that uh, it may induce people who look at it to go out and to, uh, to, to rape kids and sexually abuse kids. And, and Kennedy basically said, and here's a phrase lawyers often use, that proves too much. If we allowed government to punish anything that could be used to 
induce somebody to engage in a crime or induce somebody to be a victim because that was the other argument that um, you know you uh, an adult might be able to show these pictures to an actual kid and to try to persuade the actual kid that having sexual contact with an adult is okay. And I think an example that Kennedy gave was, well, you know, ice cream and, 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 and candy are also used to lure kids and to seduce kids by some, by some bad actors. That means we out, you know, we punish the bad actors. We don't outlaw yeah. ice cream and candy. Yeah, we don't prosecute people who are making candy and ice cream. So yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, I'm not going to keep you much, much longer, but why do you think, why are you so passionate about free speech and anti-censorship? I, as far back as I can remember, I have been Hillary. And I would say, you know, when I was really young, it was because I was very selfish. I wanted to talk and I wanted to hear other people. Uh, and the older I got, the more I realized that important as free speech is from the perspective of individual liberty and autonomy, freedom of choice, uh, everything you and I have been talking about, it is also an essential prerequisite for every societal movement of every strike. Yes, you know, white nationalists and and, and fascists can use freedom of speech, but so too can anti-fascists and racial justice crusaders. And uh, I've come to understand that it is especially those who lack majority political power because they are dissenters or they are reformers, uh, they're dissidents or they are minority groups of various sorts. Those are the ones who especially depend on a really robust free speech because by definition, they don't wield majoritarian power. So they can only win through persuasion and, and demonstration, not through raw political power. I've also come to realize that robust freedom of speech is absolutely critical in a democracy, a democratic republic to use the technical term as we have in the United States, our constitution begins with the great words, we the people. Uh, we are the ones who wield sovereign power, but we can't do that in any meaningful way unless we have the most wide ranging freedom to uh, debate and dissent and get information and criticize and even unfairly and, and wrongly criticize those that we elect to be accountable to us. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you agreeing to be on my show. So, Oh, thank you so much for having me, Hillary. I'm really honored, and I look forward to listening to this and to other episodes. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. I know this is a very controversial subject. I'm aware of that, and just know that I am acknowledging that. However, I want to give a few examples. So when you're talking about restriction of speech, you have to be aware of who's in charge of enforcing those restrictions. You have to be aware of what speech exactly will be uh, restricted. 
So we're going to go over a, a few examples here, uh, recent examples having to deal with restriction of free speech, even when it sounds like a good idea, like restriction of hate speech. So there was a, um, a Black Lives Matter protest in um, Bethel, Ohio recently, a few weeks ago. And the whole thing turned into this, this massive counter-protest against the Black Lives Matter people, uh, demonstrators. So, there's this guy named Lonnie Mead that was a part of that town. He grew up in the, in the city in Bethel. And he got very, very upset when he found out they were having a Black Lives Matter protest. Uh, very upset about it, and he posted about it on Facebook. So I want to go over what he posted and what he broadcasted on Facebook Live. All right, so this is what he posted. Sunday at 3 o'clock, they're supposed to be bringing a Black Lives Matter. I'm going to tell you right now, I hope that everybody that feels like me, I hope we outnumber those people a thousand to one and not let that shit happen in our little town of Bethel. You're not going to bring hate to our town. We don't have hate in it right now. You're going to bring hate. All right. And this was over a protest. And this certainly worked. He did, was able to gather a massive amount of mass protesters, uh, a massive amount of counter-protesters, sorry, and protest against the Black Lives Matter protest. And everything just turned to shit, you know? But this guy decided that he wouldn't stand for hate. And he decided that the Black Lives Matter protest were hate, and he wouldn't let that stand in his town. So think about that. Think about what can be classified as hate from other people's point of view, and think about how subjective the term hate is, or like was discussed in this podcast, how objective morality, the term morality is. Everybody holds their own viewpoint of their own different morality or values or because the Republican Party calls themselves the party of family values. And to reveal my politics here, um, I certainly do not agree with those values. My values do not line up with their values uh, or obscenity, how things cannot be defined clearly or pornography. These are very subjective terms, and what ends up getting censored are things that hurt marginalized communities. I want to go over another example, another recent example of this. Now, when you work for an organization, they do have the right to fire you based on what you post, because that's the way it works. It's not really an issue of free speech. However, I think we should consider 
I think we should consider um, what goes into that as well and what workplaces find offensive because that matters when determining a restriction of speech law. If your workplace already finds this offensive, then more than likely the current government will hold it as offensive. So in the Pickerton in Ohio again, in the Pickerington Local School District, a Facebook post was made by Damica Bates. She uh, is listed as an assistant principal at Tussing Elementary for the 2019-2020 school year. The picture um, by Bates to Facebook shows her daughter posing in front of graffiti with a uh, negative message that was directed toward the police. The Pickerington local school district uh, had this to say about it. The district was made aware of a controversial image on Mrs. Bates' personal Facebook page last night and contacted Mrs. Bates to begin an investigation into the matter. Mrs. Bates posted a public apology on her personal Facebook page around noon today. Being that it is the July 4th holiday, district leaders are not in the office, but the matter will be discussed in further detail Monday. Uh, she released a statement on her Facebook page uh, saying that it was a mistake and that she apologized. Uh, here's her statement from her Facebook page. Statement regarding derogatory picture of my daughter posing by graffiti. Last night, a post surfaced to the picture of my daughter posing in front of graffiti that was derogatory towards police. I would like to be very clear. That statement does not reflect the views of myself or my family. We did not write those words and we do not agree with those words. On the day of the photograph, my family had taken a trip downtown to view the artwork on the boards in relation to the recent protest. My husband and I wanted to use this experience as an educational trip with our children to provide them more perspective in regards to the protests around the world. Later that day, I created a post and shared 10 pictures of our day via Instagram. The preview of the photo in question was cropped on Instagram and did not include the derogatory statement in it. After I posted it, it automatically posted to my Facebook page which showed the entire picture. As soon as I was made aware of its contents, I removed the photo immediately. This was a mistake and I take full responsibility for it. As a leader in our community, my intent was never to post something that was polarizing or deemed disrespectful to any particular group of people. Though my social media posts often stand for social equality, I also understand the important role the police officers play in social progress. I appreciate their efforts in keeping our community safe, especially during this time of extreme tension. I am aware of the hurt I have caused to the police officers, their family, and friends. I truly apologize. Moving forward, I will be more mindful of the content that is shared on social media and make sure it aligns with the views that I have. I am fully committed to working with our community, police officers, and educators as we continue to move forward together. Sincerely, uh, Damica Bates. Damica Bates? I'm not sure how her name is pronounced, and I apologize for that. But they were investigating it. Uh, this was posted a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if they're still investigating it or if any kind of action resulted in this uh, post she made on Facebook. 
But let's discuss this. So she was basically reprimanded and her post is being investigated or has been investigated because of a picture she took and put on Instagram that got automatically posted to Facebook. A picture of her at a uh, Black Lives Matter protest that had something derogatory about the police written in graffiti on the wall. And this was put under investigation. So the school, offic school officials found this to be a cause for concern that she was posting in front of something that was derogatory towards police. Now let's think about that. Because the Black Lives Matter protest is killing, is protesting <laughs> killing uh, black people by the police, murdering black people uh, by the police. The police have been murdering black people and that is what the Black Lives Matter protest have been against. And that's controversial. I just don't, that we have to make sure the police's feelings aren't hurt because that's what's important here is what the school district is basically saying. I'm aware that it's a school district and they have to attain to certain things, but at the same time, it's a school district and schools should be encouraging uh, anti-censorship and freedom of speech as well. But think about this on a higher level. So what if, what if a hate speech law was put into place and this woman had taken a picture of her daughter with this sign? What would have happened to her if those laws were put into place? Would she, would she have some sort of uh, legal penalty? Would she have gotten immediately fired from her job? What would have happened to her? Think about the people in power before you say you support a law that restricts speech. I've got one more example. This article was posted uh, July 10th, 2020. Uh, it's a BuzzFeed article. Uh, if anybody wants links to any of these articles, I'm more than happy to provide them. I have them. I can provide links. So there was a woman in Utah who did lose her job at an aquarium attraction. After uh, being told, another employee felt threatened by artistic images she shared on Facebook again of uh, KKK members being lynched. Her name was, uh, her name is Madison Hartman, 24. She was an employee at Sequest Utah location. She worked there for four years, but she had recently been fired. Um, on June 25th of this year, she was pulled into a meeting to, to discuss her post. She, uh, there was a recording of that meeting that she provided to BuzzFeed News. This post was an art installation by the Endicon Collective that showed figures in KKK robes hanging from a tree. It's titled Ku Klux Clowns, and the piece was a response to the 2017 killing of an anti, of anti-racist protester, Heather Heyer, at the uh, 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. So, um, Here's her quote on it. 
They mostly said that since the post was public and because I had Sequest listed on my profile that I had to take it down. But they also mentioned that a fellow employee found it as harassing and that I was violating the harassment policy. Uh, in the recording, the manager tells her the post was taken a different way and he understands how someone can find it offensive. Uh, this was his quote. As a manager, I could literally be held liable if somebody feels uncomfortable or is offended by something and I don't take action. And then he asked her to delete the image. He also said that it could be seen as condoning violence or illegal activity. Her quote is, I said something along the lines of, I didn't think you guys could police what I posted on my private page. She did ultimately comply and remove the image, but then she got into trouble again. And this time it was for a photo of a New Orleans boxer, Jonathan Montrell. Uh, in this photo, he's raising, uh, he's flipping a bird and has a tattoo of a, his hand has a tattoo of a Klansman being hanged. The post includes the tags Black Lives Matter and BLM. Uh, this time the post was set to friends only and she went the extra step of excluding some co-workers she had as friends on Facebook. She was told to report to management and she got a call from the company's human resource manager. She was told that she had violated the policy again and that the same person felt harassed and threatened by it because it was an image depicting violence and then she was fired. Here's her quote about it. I understand the public post, but when they said the reason I was fired was harassing other employees, I was like, someone just told you they're in support of KKK people and I'm the one getting in trouble. It doesn't make any sense. Sequest's response was, uh, from Lisa Edwards, who's Sequest's HR manager, was, Sequest believes in promoting a safe environment for our team members, guests, and suppliers to enjoy. Any violation of our policies will result in disciplinary action, including possible termination. As a company, we do not fill the post as if a team member were in line with our company's ethics, value, or company culture. All right. So, this was obviously qualified as harassment, and I would guess some kind of hate speech towards somebody else in the uh, company. So yes, this private company did have the right to fire her based on that. However, let's look at the broader, uh, the broader perspective on this. So she had been working, or uh, if a federal, if this hate speech was illegal nationwide, look who's in office right now. Look who's in office. Look who's in Congress. Yes, we have a few progressive people in Congress, but not a lot. Not a lot of actual progressives. Most Democrats that serve in Congress are centrist. They're not progressives. Think about what Congress and the president and our federal government would define as hate speech. Or pornography or obscenity. This has already been gone over on what is legal in fandom and I strongly suggest you listen to that episode about why we cannot base uh, morality 
on legal issues. And I know this is a very controversial topic, and I know that it's hard to take a step back and think about it objectively. I know that it's very, very hard to do so. But these laws generally hurt marginalized groups. And I think that's ultimately what the point is. Again, I very much recommend Nadine Strassen's books, Defending Pornography, Free Speech, Sex, and the Fight of Women's Rights, which was released in 1995, and then Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship, uh, which was written in 2018. And I do fully support uh, reading these books and seeing what all this controversial stuff is about and becoming educated on uh, all the issues here associated with it. And if anybody wants any links to any of these articles, I am more than happy to provide them. Again, I am on social media at Silenced Fandom, at, on Instagram, Tumblr, and I am on Twitter at um, Hillary Hensley, H-I-L-L-A-R-Y-H-E-N-C-E-L-Y, so, yeah, hit me up if you want links. If you just want to chat, I am more than willing to. Um, so, yes, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening.